98.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the great robot wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, hello, everybody. This is Kimberly Martin, your host of Real People OC. And I know you don't believe it, but I'm actually back in the hot seat today. I haven't been here for a while, and I've missed you so (laughs) I fell into the big black hole of moving, and that is not an easy hole to climb out of. I think they say it takes at least a year. So, um, But I'm back in the studio, and I have a few people to thank because I had a lot of people step in for me while I was away and cover my tracks for me. A big shout-out to Marie Stone. She is our DJ from Writers on Writing, and she stepped in and interviewed a few fascinating people for us here at Real People OC. So if you didn't get a chance to hear those shows or you want to hear them again, you can go to our podcast link here at KUCI.org and have a listen. And then each and every show that we do here live, we also put up on podcasts so you can hear all those important details that we try to bring to you. So I had a lot of people call me while I was away for shows. And so I'm really excited about the lineup coming in the coming weeks. And I'll look forward to hopefully getting that up. I'm getting, I'm not saying I'm getting savvy because I'm definitely a long ways away from anything that resembles media savviness. But uh, KUCI is making it really easy for us here. So Nathan Callahan and a couple of the other DJs here that are all volunteers are making it so we can communicate better with you, the listener, and let you know in advance who we have coming our way. So I want to get into today's show because these folks called up and said, hey, any chance we can get onto the airwaves and let people know what we're doing? It's it's kind of important. And um we want to let everybody know that this event is open to the public. So this event is going to be addressing the issue of bullying. And I have in the studio with me today, Devin Hughes, a bullying expert, and Julie Arlotti. She is um, with Hallstrom Education. It is a um, Hallstrom Academy is a, a private education here in Newport Beach. And we're going to be addressing some of the um those issues that touch students in ways that parents can never seem to either understand or put their finger on or even solve by going to administration at their school. Bullying is such a big thing in our society right now, and we're learning so much more about who does it, why they do it, and who, more importantly, are the targets of bullying. And so we want to get to know our kids a little better through through the prism of understanding bullying. And so Devin C. Hughes is the guy to talk to, I guess. So he's in the studio. He's a really big, imposing guy. I, I can't imagine anybody trying to bully Devin. <laughs> You're, are you sure you weren't the bully? So anyway, we're, we're going to learn a little bit about bullying from uh, Devin and from Julie. And um, then to find out that here locally and open to the public 
is an event called Hallstrom Success. And you can go and learn a little bit more about that at hallstromsuccess.com. And we're going to learn all about the academy and how they address the, um, the special needs of their student population. And to learn about bullying, because it happens not just in school, it happens in all ages of life. We've addressed a lot of those topics here at Rural People OC and um, in the forms of domestic violence and uh, child abuse. But really, this is all kind of just... It's a prism that we're looking at it from all sides, this, tackling this issue of somebody trying to assert power over another and how we might um, how we might address that. So um, listen, let me welcome our guests here. Uh, Devin, say a quick hello, and Julie, you say hello too, okay? Delighted to be here and look forward to uh, having a uh, meaningful discussion today. Okay, good. Well, I'm excited. Julie, you want to say a quick shout out? Hello, hello to everybody out there from Halstrom Academy. Good. Okay. So listen, um, I know there's a lot of backstories and I want to hear a little bit quickly from you. Well, quickly is not really fair, is it, Devin? <laughs> <laughs> quickly, let's just, let's just talk a little bit about why you find yourself in a place where you want to help kids that are being bullied. Yeah. So I have the unique position that uh, I was bullied and was a bully. Oh. And so um, it started way back when I was five years old and I can remember you know like it was yesterday I was walking in the kindergarten holding my my father's hand and we approached the kindergarten teacher it just so happens that my father's african-american and if you looked at my skin tone you wouldn't know that I was biracial and as I approached the kindergarten teacher and she happened to be sitting down at a table and I was squeezing my father's hand so tightly because I was so nervous and scared and she looked up and looked down and said to me and my father, is your mother here? As if it was incongruent for a black man to be holding a white kid's hand at five years old on the first day of school. Now, did you live in any particular part of the country where that would be more of, of an oddity than maybe here in California? So I grew up in Washington, D.C. Okay. Uh, I live right out in a suburb of Washington, D.C. in the 60s. Okay. Um, so, all right, so let's, and I'm sorry, should I ask you how old you are? You said you grew up in the 60s, so. I'm 46. Okay, we're the same age. Oops, did I just tell you my age? <laughs> I guess I did. <laughs> I don't know, for growing up where I did in Riverside, none of that would have been an issue. So that was just maybe more normal where we are out here in California? Yeah, so there's more to the story. So my parents uh, met in the segregated South. My father's from uh, uh, Mullen, South Carolina. My mom grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. And so just think for a second, a black man and a white woman in the segregated South in the 60s um, was not necessarily in vogue. It just so happened that my mother's father uh, was in this loosely affiliated group that liked to wear bed sheets on their head and burn crosses on your front yard. So mom and dad escaped to Washington, D.C. and had uh, light-skinned, green-eyed me in 1969, two years after the Supreme Court legalized interracial marriage in America. And so I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, but although looking at me, you would not know it. And so most of my life, I always felt different, unique, like I didn't fit in. And that experience in kindergarten was one of many, which I tended to carry around with me like luggage and just really had a lot of self-doubt and self-esteem issues. I loved what you told me in the car. Um, actually, it was out here in the studio lobby when I asked you, you know, just could you tell me what um, biracial... Um, family you grew up in because it's it wasn't it isn't clearly known by looking at you and um, tell me what you said people would would say because I think that was so interesting 
Yeah. So since my father's black and my mother's white, and I, you know, I had I look white uh, for the most part. I was in and around a myriad of conversations where people would discuss issues that were racist in tone. They would use pejoratives that weren't nice about people of color. So I was always in that situation, whether it be educators or coaches or whomever at an early age, uh, always feeling torn and, and having an inside peek at what was going on inside the heads of folks and really feeling uncomfortable because of the language and so other stuff that I had seen because people didn't know my background. <coughs> It's such a difficult discussion to have the discussion of race. And I know people, even well-intentioned people, want to have that discussion. And yet they they find themselves tippy-toeing around the topics without really feeling open to discuss really both sides. As a, as a white person in California where everybody's pretty open and free here, I don't think I realized until somewhere around the time Barack Obama was elected president how much pain and suffering people go through by being misunderstood simply because of their race? No, agreed. And so I, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. And so I, for the most part, it was kind of an African-American experience. So I kind of saw firsthand both sides of the equation. Um, and that said, I um, internalized a lot of that baggage. Now, keep in mind, my grandparents didn't accept accept me. So at an early age, I, I was growing up, neither side accepted me. I was just father. about to ask you if one or the other, but neither. So that would be pretty difficult. Yeah, so it was a pretty non-traditional childhood. We didn't have dinners at grandma's house, and grandma didn't come visit and all the other stuff. And then, so <clears throat> again, at an early age, I, I, I really noticed that I just didn't fit in. Okay. Um Julie, do you want to weigh in on this at all? Did you have some experiences like this as a child that led you to the career that you're in? or you? No, no my father was in law enforcement, um, and the same as with, with a race. Um, we used to have little pigs left on our doorstep, and I, same age as you. So um, there was that type of what I would consider bullying. Um, but my parents raised us very well where we didn't worry about what other people said and thought. And I think I've grown up and I like to teach the students that we have to have that strength to to be confident in themselves and not worry about what other people. But I did definitely did not grow up how you did. That's I haven't had to <laughs> deal with that. And I can't imagine the kids that do and other challenges. Race just didn't seem like an issue for us, and I don't know if it was because, I mean, I, I can't say that I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood because that wasn't the way it was. We, there was a little bit of everybody here, and so there was not one overarching, you know, dominant uh, group that that felt, you know, that they were going to be set over here or, or part partitioned off from the rest of us. So it was just a little different here in California, and I, I, I finally figured out that it was... It was so different, and it seems to be the origin of so much pain for both young and old. Yeah, so, <clears throat> so part of my backstory, though, is that I had a lot of shame growing up. Uh, so my, my parents suffered from addiction issues. Uh, I witnessed domestic violence. I mean, I had a lot of stuff going on as a kid, plus I'm dyslexic. So it wasn't just race. It was learning disability. It was the, the, my, my parents suffering from addiction issues and a myriad of other things that I carried around with, with me to school every day coupled with some socioeconomic issues. My father dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. My mother barely finished high school and she ran off when she was 18 and had me shortly thereafter. 
So it wasn't the traditional Brady Bunch upbringing by any means. There was a lot of love in the house. But also at an early age, I just was carrying a lot of stuff. And the kids like me don't have anyone to talk to. I mean, you don't go into your your, your kindergarten teacher and go, hey, you know, hey, I, I saw my dad put, you know, his hands on my mom last night. That stuff, you, it's like you know, a thousand paper cuts. And so that was part of the genesis for why I think I started to pick on kids because I, I, I needed an outlet, so to speak, to make others feel worse than I was. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Do you think you knew that at the time, that that's what was happening? No, I, I had no idea at the time. I mean, I, I wish I could say I had that kind of self-reflective power. I just knew that I needed some kind of, since I felt powerless at the time for, for most of my life, I needed to, to take control of at any angle I could at school, and it was an opportunity for me to do that. And I was a big kid, most bigger than most, and I was, you know, so... And I wasn't the traditional, uh, you know, push the kid down and, and beat him up bully. I was more the kind of passive aggressive bully. I'd make fun of you. I'd find something about your body image or your mom or your dad or your sister. Or I'd make fun of you in, uh, that way and, and try to emotionally take control and pick on you in a way so the teacher couldn't see. There wouldn't be any actual physical bruises. There'd be a more emotional bruises, but it would be, re- it'd be frequent. Okay. Um, like a constant barrage on your victims. They would just know they were your target and uh, they, they couldn't come out from under <clears throat> what, what you had wanted to inflict upon them. Yeah, and, and unfortunately I had folks around me in my peer group that you know would laugh or you know kind of jump in and so validate the behavior. So that kind of fueled the fire for me to continue down that route in a lot of areas. So I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that you've had the perspective of both sides, that of a bully and somebody that has been bullied. I want to know more about what it felt like to inflict that kind of pain. What was, what was the, um, the benefit that you felt that, you know, that immediate injection of what did you get? Well, um, as far as empathy, I, I, I can say I probably had none, really. It was, I was pretty much numb at the time, just based on what was going on at home. Uh, I will say this, though, the, the feeling of power, so to speak, uh, it doesn't, doesn't last long at all. I mean, you feel a little bit of, you know, I guess, umph, so to speak, when you get to pick on another uh, kid. Uh, but it's like a cough drop. It evaporates, and you still have to go back to your, your existence where it's horrible. And so part of the challenge, I think, with bullies, and this is why I struggle with it, is it's, beca- it's become a label. And so we put a label on a kid, and it's not, it's, an, it's not an identity, it's a behavior. It's like anything else. And so far too often in public schools, we, you know, it's like a scarlet letter we put on kids. And, and I think there's an opportunity to, to help, some of the, help some of these kids like me dig their way out of the mud. Okay. <clears throat> so really, when you look at your program, and the program uh, locally here is called Hallstrom Success. But what do you call it nationally when you go around to other schools? Do you call it something else? Well, I have a workbook that I created uh, based on a system called uh, called STAR. And STAR stands for self-talk, tolerance, activity, and relationships. So I actually give parents and educators a workbook that they can use to work with the kids who are getting bullied and, be, and the bullies themselves to work on their self-esteem and a, essentially kind of emotional toolkit um, which helped me dig my way out of my hole. So. Okay. I love the cover of your comic book that you've done here. It's called Self-Talk by Devin C. Hughes and um, it says a child's bulletproof vest against emotional gunfire. That's really what this is, isn't it? It's just 
somebody shooting off their Uzi trying to uh, unleash their payload on somebody else. Yeah, and so as I alluded to earlier, again, I, I, that's, that's how I picked on people. It was emotional. It was verbal. And so this comic book that I created, Self Talk, um, essentially will give parents and kids an opportunity to channel the self-talk. See, so most of the, when you're not feeling good as a kid, most of the self-talk is negative. And if you look at the research, we have like 50,000 thoughts a day. You get a kid who's in a bad place, whether it be dyslexia or being bullied or whatever it is, most of that self-talk is negative. I'm not worthy. I'm not cool. I'm not smart. I'm not athletic. And if you can make, if you can channel that and make it positive self-talk and make that a habit, you can start to have him or her dig their way out of the hole and think differently about themselves and everything changes. So you're really addressing both sides of the equation, which just seems so logical when you want to address a situation where somebody's a victim and somebody's an aggressor, right? Absolutely. Uh, school is a safe place to do this today? Yes or no? So I struggle with that. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, one day and two day events where some folks come in and they run certain uh, events to bring all the kids who are victimized and being bullied and they run them through a four hour program and all well intentioned but you know and I know that it's really difficult to influence or change behavior in four hours. Right Mm -hmm. and then when you sit there and you hear people say if I could just make the difference in one person's life today really it's not enough you know I, I i love the intent behind that but it's really honestly not enough because when you look at the developmental stages of kids and i'm a parent i'm i'm putting my kids through school i can remember thinking oh my gosh high school is just four years and two of them just flew by that means i've got two years left to make a difference in this one child's life how the heck you know, how do we make a difference that quickly? You don't you don't have as many opportunities as you think to get in and do that impact. A curriculum like this probably has to be a bigger part of the equation, doesn't it? Yeah. So uh, to me, it's a life skill. You know, I think that uh, you have an opportunity to build self-esteem and confidence and kindness and compassion and empathy is all a part of my program. And gratitude is all a part of my program to build people, kids up so they have an opportunity, a toolkit to weather the storm regardless of what's going on. And, you know, to piggyback on that, he, he's talking about how, why he became a bully, what it was that he was feeling as a bully. And I like to approach the other side, the kids that are getting bullied. I like to empower them and say, think about why that person is doing that. They're not happy. Something's not working for them. So everything's working for you. Don't let, affect, don't let how their feelings affecting themselves affect you. I, I really try, and even with my own son, If he comes home and complains about somebody was picking on him or somebody said something he didn't like, I ask him, why do you think they're doing that? Why are they being mean? They're not happy with themselves. We're happy. We have a great family. You're doing well in school. Don't listen to that. So it's, you know, we work so much on trying to get the bullies not to be bullies. But I also believe we also need to teach the the children that are being bullied to be confident, teaching them confidence, to be able to, to not fight back, but to be able to not let those type of other kids hurt them or affect them. Okay, good. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Real People OC, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. And we have in the studio today... Um, Devin Hughes and Julie Arlotti. Devin is here to talk about uh, bullying and uh, Julie is here representing Hallstrom Academy here in Newport Beach 
And we're going to have you weigh in a little bit, Julie. I want to hear about the special population that Holstrom Academy addresses and why you have um, brought a program like Holstrom Success to your school for your for your parent and student population, but also for everybody in the area to come and join in. It's open to the public. Let's talk about that. So Halstrom Academy is, it's a one-on-one education. There was no purpose behind the one-on-one except for that it's one teacher with one student bringing them together so that they can learn. So we have students from all different avenues coming. They're coming because they're in athletics and they need a flexible schedule. They're coming, um, they're actors and actresses. They're coming because they were bullied in the school. They're coming because they have learning indifferences. But the one-on-one allows us to focus on them, on that one student, and make them feel successful and get through school and hopefully continue with that success after they've gone to Hellstrom. So anybody that is finding themselves in a circumstance where they can't attend regular on-campus instruction would be a candidate for Hallstrom? And students that can attend a regular are also candidates for Hallstrom. It is it is just like any other school. We offer everything that the other schools do on top of we also have the one-on-one. They're getting specialized attention. Okay, so you're not just exclusively one-on-one attention. You have a regular campus. No, no, no. But I'm saying it's a reg. Any, you don't have to have an issue mm-hmm. to attend Hellstrom. Oh no, I see that. Anybody yeah. can attend Hellstrom. Okay, and the campus in Newport is where? It is in. It's actually near the airport in Irvine. Okay, Colton Plaza, um, on Martin Street, right? Two three zero two Martin Street. Right in Colton Plaza, Irvine. Okay, so um, it's actually Newport, but it says Irvine. <laughs> Sorry. It, Mailing address says yeah, Irvine. Yeah, right, right. It gets confusing, <laughs> but it's it's over there by the airport. Um, okay, so what are what were some of the reasons that you felt you wanted to bring this to your student population? Um, I, I think that a lot of students that we do have come are coming because the traditional um, school with a large setting isn't working for them whether it be bullying, whether it be learning indifferences, uh, whether it be their schedule. But this is something that we can address with students. If they're feeling bullied in a large population, um, their specific kids and that, that they don't get along with at the school and they come to our school, with the one-on-one, we have a lot of students at the school that they can still socialize with, but it's monitored more. There's fewer kids. Um, their confidence comes up. I think just the confidence in the student themselves, seeing themselves achieve their academics is going to make them not stand out to get bullied or what have you. Um, the the bullying prevention should be with every school, not just with Halstrom. Sure, sure. So it's one of the reasons why you've opened it to the public. And that event is on April 25th. Um, there at your Newport campus, which is uh, 2302 Martin Street. That is Suite 100 over there in Colton Plaza. And um, you can also go to hallstromsuccess.com for more information. I'm going to give you that website spelled out. It's H-A-L-S-T-R-O-M and the word success, hallstromsuccess.com. You can also RSVP if you'd like to 866 590 
888-888-8572. And it would be nice for them to know you're coming so they can set out more chairs, right? <laughs> but such an such an encouraging thing for the parent to go with the student to an event like that where they can right. get that defense together, those tools. Devin, let's circle back to you and talk a little bit about how this program has developed and what you intend for it to do. So it's actually a natural um, marriage between Hallstrom and myself because um, part of the, I think the reason that I began to bully um, was I was struggling in school, traditional school. So when you got a class size of 30, 40 kids and you're struggling, you, most kids like myself didn't raise their hand and say, hey, I don't know that answer. So fortunately for me, my mother had sent me to get tested at the University of Maryland. She's not clinically trained. But she saw, you know, uh, moments of brilliance and then moments of just of like, ah, uh, I was diagnosed with dyslexia. And then <clears throat> from that, I was sent to a private school, which happened to be military. But uh, in addition to that, I had an adjunct curriculum after school, uh, which was one on one. And it's not Hallstrom like, but kind of similar. And that one on one orientation that I had with this lady in Washington, D.C. in the early 70s was a huge impetus for where I am today because it was the first educator in my life who actually had shown me that I could do something. You know what it's like to be in seventh grade and have a little success and teacher come over and give you a high five and tell you that you can do it? I mean, I can still remember that. It's like it's yesterday. She was the first person that actually showed me that edu learning could be fun. She was the first person to show me that I could raise my hand if I didn't know and it'd be comfortable. And so I was gradually my confidence was building as I was working with her, and everything changed. And that's why I'm so excited about what Hallstrom's doing, the one-on-one -on -one orientation. So for any kid, whether you're being bullied, whether you don't fit in, for whatever reason, yeah, the one-on-one -on -one opportunity like that, to have some undivided attention like that, can absolutely change a kid's life. Boy, I, I can think of, you know, a handful of people that we've encountered through our academic and journey with our kids where that could have just meant the world to that child. <clears throat> Do most people that have their children attend Hallstrom attend the entire academic career or is it used <coughs> as a um, let's get you through this stage and see if we can reorient you back into a regular school situation? It's both. We have both. We have full-time students that they come mm -hmm. and they stay with us because it's working and it's working well for them. Um, especially kids with dyslexia, with ADHD that have trouble with the large setting and they're successful with us. We also have kids that will come some Something has happened at their school they'll come for one semester maybe two semesters and tr transition back into their home school which is also okay okay so um, is it a regular school day do they show up every day to school just like they would at home or how does that work depends on the parents the parents are the ones that really get to set their schedule so the classes are one-on-one -on -one. they're meeting for 45 minutes with a teacher for each subject one time a week so a traditional class they would have five subjects a, a traditional student five subjects they could come once a day uh, for each class so they would only come for 45 minutes Monday through Friday or they can do two classes in a day so they're only doing one session a week for that subject for that matter. subject but then they're given three to five hours of homework which is independent work it's similar to how a college would work we encourage them to stay on our campus though so that we can guide them and help them we have tutors on campus the teachers will will help them uh, that way by the time they go home the parents don't have the frustration of their homework is it done what what needs to be done how can I help you I don't know this topic that sort of thing 
Okay. So I'm thinking, boy, you cut out all those lunchtime and recesses and you give somebody really focused instruction and you don't need a lot of time, do you? Right. No, in the 45 minutes, it's complete instruction. They're not doing anything else but instruction. Now, I have homeschooled my children before, and certainly not by choice, and that's a really hard one to say that I didn't do by choice, but I really didn't choose to homeschool them. I was trying to get them into a program locally, and it required that I sit in purgatory, homeschool purgatory for a while <laughs> until the kids got you know, approved to go in. And it was, it was one of the most frustrating things I've ever done. Um, this is not like that, right? This You no. take, totally take this off the parent's plate. No, the parent is not teaching the course. The teachers are teaching the course. The students are then following up with homework to show their mastery of what they learned. Um, like I said, we encourage them to stay on campus so that we can help them through that. Any test that they take is not done during class time. Any assessment is not done during class time. So that class is literally just 45 minutes of straight instruction. Pure instruction. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Boy, I wish I would have known that. I know a lot of people that could have benefited from knowing about it. I have so many people that come in when they enroll and they say, I wish I would have known about you three years ago for my older child. How long have you been around? Uh, Halstrom has been around over 30 years total, 13 years for the campus that I'm at at Mission Viejo. Okay. Um, And then we have campuses popping up all over the place. Okay, good. So it's just including Newport. Including Newport. (laughs) It's just as easy as, you know, you find an interested group of people that want to be there. And um, so this is kind of seen as a solution to a lot of issues that can crop up in a kid's life. If you take that general, you know, brush stroke of bullying and, um, and you say, you know, there's so many people that this type of victimization in school can impact. What's, what do we do as a community? Like, how do we start? How do we unwind? It's so broad and so overwhelming. What do we do, Devin? Well, it's actually more pronounced now um, because of technology, right? Now you have cyberbullying. So back in my day, you didn't have it. So now not only can I <clears throat> tease you at school, I can go home on, on, on Snapchat or Facebook or whatever the medium can be, and I can post stuff that's untrue or not true, and that's a permanent record, and kids don't realize that, and then people can retweet it and so forth. <clears throat> and so it's a huge challenge right now to get our arms around that. So, um, you know, bullying's not new, and... Um, we haven't found a solution yet, but I think what we need to do and, and what Hallstrom does and other ones is we need to talk about it. We need to build some life skills into the curriculum. We need to talk about what empathy and what being kind and what being compassion looks like and what I call social investment, investing in relationships. See, we're actually going the other way with the technology. Most kids now don't, can't even have a meaningful conversation. They can tweet you or text you or find out what you're doing on Pinterest. You go to a dinner table now to family and people are all on their, on their cell phones. So I think it's getting more pronounced. And so I think we've almost got to go back and reconnect at home and in school and start talking about some of these issues, but also starting connecting kids to actually have real conversations, not just with their electronic toys. You know, that's that's funny that he mentions that because one of the things that I like to do at my campus, and I did this even before I was working at Hellstrom, I always either have licorice or some little chocolates on my desk and, and the kids will peek their head in and I won't acknowledge them until they walk in and they say hi and they need to come and say hi to me. Then they can get a chocolate or or a licorice or something. But it's gotten the kids to come in and not be afraid to come in and talk. And then sometimes they'll sit down and they'll start talking. They'll start telling me things that are going on. They'll start telling me they wouldn't have done that without that 
invitation to, hey, come on in here. And I agree that, you know, with social media, it's been so hard. So I really, really try to uh, talk with the kids. And that's how the one-on-one is. It's a teacher with the student, and they're conversing. The student gets to participate in that. Yeah, right. They do. Um, Okay, so if you're just tuning in, this is Real People OC. We air each and every week from 4 to 5 on Thursday afternoons. You can listen to us if you get to pop in that car early for the commute. But um, I think we provide interesting guests. And today I'm enjoying a conversation with uh, Devin Hughes and Julie Arlotti about bullying and a program that uh, they are offering through Hallstrom Academy here in Newport Beach. And that's going to be held on April 25th. It is at noon. It's free, a free event to parents and students. And it's at 2302 Martin Street. That's at Suite 100 in the Colton Plaza. And if you want to find out more information, you can go to HallstromSuccess.com. And Hallstrom is spelled H-A-L-S-T-R-O-M. There's also an RSVP number where you can dial up and say you want to be there, 866-590-8572. I know it's at noon, but if you're a parent with a student who's struggling with a bullying issue, you might consider, you know, that something like this done together could be a benefit if uh, if you just haven't opened that dialogue with your child, if you think your child's a bully or if you think your child is being bullied. Either way, it sounds to me like Devin has some answers. Um, Devin, let's, let's pick this apart a little bit. You have some strategies. Can we talk about what some of those are? Yeah, certainly. So um, first of all, <clears throat> whether it be the bully or the, or the, the kid being bullied, um, I'll, I'll take the bully first himself. Um, I don't like the label, first of all, and so we, we've got we to get rid of that. What do we say instead? Well, you know, I just the labels in general are harmful, you know, whatever those are, and that's just another one. And, and when, you, when you label a kid a bully, that, that comes with it a bunch of baggage. And so instead of talking about what the bully is doing wrong or, or putting a label on a kid, I like to go into a school, an organization, and talk about what he's doing right. Because far too often we look for what's not going right versus what you know what's not going right, and so I, I you know I, t- I talk to a teacher and educators and, and ask them what are you doing right now to build self esteem or confidence in these kids? What are you what are you doing right now to make them feel good or talk about kindness or compassion or some of the other things that I talk about? And you should see some of the looks in the faces I get from some of the teachers as if that's not their responsibility to build those life skills in some of the kids. And so right now in public school, there's, to be honest, there's, at least in California, there's not really an opportunity. Class sizes are huge. Uh, teachers are overwhelmed. So it, it falls back on the parents. And for most parents, they don't even know their kids being bullied. Most kids that are being bullied don't go home and tell their parents unless it's usually too late or it's got so catastrophic that they've, they're starting to skip school or they get sick or they don't want to school or, or they start to see some symptoms. Well, and like you said earlier, with the social media, there's a lot of kids that don't want their parents to know they're on social media or that they're being victimized by social media because they're going to get cut off. The parent, the first thing the parent's going to do is pull the phone, pull the computer, pull the, the life plug, if you will, to prevent that from happening. That's I think that's probably what most parents' knee-jerk reaction would be. I've even had a girlfriend you know, witness some cyberbullying with her friend and she got the phone and she started giving it back to the kid. And I'm like, I don't think that's the solution. But, um, you know, it's tricky, isn't it? 
Yeah, and it's even more tricky. I'll give you an example. So um, for the dads out there with sons, I've had some fathers say, hey, this whole bullying thing, I, I don't get it. It's kind of as if it's almost like a rite of passage. Like, you know, like a kid has to go for a man and he has to go through the bullying stage to kind of toughen up and put his big boy pants on and move through it. So this moxie and this bravado and this kind of faux toughness that some of the fathers out there have, we got to get rid of that playbook because it doesn't work at all. And most of the kids now that are bullying, they grow up to be workplace bullies. And if you look at the data, whether it be crime or suicide or a host of other social issues, they carry the baggage with them because no one day we treat the symptoms. We don't really get to the heart of the matter. And that these kids are confused, misunderstood, and they have a lot of social angst, but we never really talk about it. All right. And social angst is normal. That's what being a teenager is largely about is coming into your own. So what are some of the tools that you give kids during your speech? So, for example, one of the things I'm going to do at, at Hallstrom here uh, in a few weeks on the 25th is I'm actually going to share with them some, a recipe or a toolkit, so to speak, on how they can be happier. Because if you get in a better place emotionally, regardless of what's happening around you, typically can weather the storm. So my mother used to say to me over and over when I was a kid, she said, doesn't matter uh, regardless of the weather, it just matters you know, if you're dressed appropriately. And so I'm going to, I give them an emotional toolkit, so to speak, and develop some happiness habits. Okay. So for example, one would be gratitude. So I, I will show them how the power of gratitude, we can retrain the brain via neuroplasticity. So you can start to look at all the good things that are happening in your world right now. So for example, one of the things we'll do is give them three gratitudes a day for 21 days. And we'll literally start to retrain the brain on some of these kids to realize that although this little, we have this little situation at school, there's a lot of awesome stuff that's going on in your world. You're just not recognizing it. We need to counterbalance that equation. So that would be one example we're going to talk about here in Newport. Okay, good. Any more that you can give us? Yeah, certainly. Another one's called the doubler. And so the doubler is a pretty powerful concept in that the brain can't discern between a real experience and one you're reliving. So that's why dreams seem so palpable to you when you wake up in the middle of the night. Your brain thinks that's real. But it's also powerful if I get kids to start journaling. So I tell kids, if you can have one positive experience a day, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be a conversation, a high five, a hug, whatever that is. I want you to journal that for three to five minutes. And what that does is it gives the brain an opportunity to relive that experience again. So we look back over 21 days, 30 days, and we have a, we have a journal now of all, a lot of awesome stuff that's happening. So we're really retraining a kid's brain to let them know that there's good stuff going on. Because when you're being bullied, all you see is bad stuff. It's like driving in a rainstorm where you can't look out the front window. The windshield wipers don't work. Right. So I'm giving them a toolkit and some new windshield wipers. Okay. All right. Good. I um, I love how – so Devin Hughes, he is a speaker, coach, and author, <laughs> chief inspiration officer. Love that. That's what we're doing here today, talking about bullying here at Real People OC. And really – trying to rewrite the rules on how we address these issues because so many of these things it's just kind of like we were talking earlier in the conversation you know the way parents passed racism on to their kids they're also passing on this concept of of rites of passage none of that stuff do we need to carry forward do we no absolutely not and for the dads out there especially I mean I grew up with a father who had that old school playbook and so you, you know you kind of had to fight your way out of the neighborhood so to speak uh, with, with, you know, like a black eye was a badge of honor or something. And so, again, that's that's what I grew up with. But I think I've hopefully 
we're going to progress um, a little bit beyond that. So one of the things I do with you know kids like that, or especially sons, I, I teach meditation, mindfulness, which is really, really hot today in corporate America. But you know, giving kids an opportunity to unplug. So for example, most of the kids that I deal with, they're on their phones pretty much all day long, 12 to 18 hours a day. If that thing vibrates, they're on it. And it's a nervous energy too. It's not a pleasant intervention of, of information in your day, is it? Absolutely not. So what I explained to the kid, I said, does your computer work a little bit better when you reboot it? And the kids go, yeah, absolutely. Why does that do that? Well, you close all the browsers and everything and it restarts. Well, your brain needs to reboot too. And when you don't reboot the brain, it doesn't work as well. So with three to five minutes, I show kids in complete silence, no phones, no tablets, nothing, and just be, listen to the silence. And it's amazing if you can develop that habit in a kid with how things start to change and become a little bit mindful of what's going on. Right, right. Uh, how thirsty are they for a concept like mindfulness in school? Are they pretty rejecting of it in the beginning, or do you find that they uh, gravitate right towards it? Um, it? You know, it's like anything else. It's how you frame it. Right. Right. It's how you frame it. And, and if you have an opportunity, the teacher makes it cool and neat, and the educator makes it like it's a fun activity versus something that is coming from you know your parents. It's like anything else. You're, you know, you're, if your parents say it's like, ah, but if you have a fun, cool, t- hip teacher that you really like and she makes it an activity at school where we could take three minutes and it seems really fun and we come out of it a different place, then it seems like something they want to do. Gotcha. So to the kids out there that feel pretty terse inside and like they want to pick on other kids, what can we say to them as either victims or bystanders that are watching this happen? What can we give to them to help change what they're going through? Yeah, so, you know, for the bullies out there, I'd say, I, you know, I, I know you, I've been you, and uh, I know you're hurting right now. And so what I would challenge you to do is find someone, a classmate or someone at school to talk to. Just doesn't, you know, open up. Because one of the things I teach is to, to bring folks together, you need three things. You need familiarity, similarity, and self-disclosure. Okay, say that again slowly. <clears throat> I said, so I have found that you need three critical elements to bring people together, regardless of whether it's in school or the workplace. Number one is familiarity. So somebody you know who's been a part of your day-to-day. Yeah, so right. someone you feel comfortable with and you can relate to and connect to. All right. Number two is uh, um, familiarity, someone who's similar. Okay, so maybe walked a day in your shoes and understands some of the similar circumstances you face? Absolutely. And then number three is self-disclosure. So if you, can get, if you can get the first two, then you have an opportunity to self-disclose some of this pent-up stuff that you're dealing with. Get it alone, a safe place where you can talk about some of this stuff and get it out. In order to let it go, you've got to let it out. And for the most of bullies out there, include me, we, we, we didn't do that. We just carried it around, and it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Now, you bring up an interesting issue, at least to mine for me. Are more bullies boys than girls, or do you find there to be a pretty equal distribution of uh, bullying nature? So, is there a number on this in statistics? You know, I haven't seen the the recent data on that, but I have four kids, and they're all girls. Uh, Age range is ten to fifteen, and one of the epiphanies that I've had is girls can be just as vicious as boys. Yeah, the bullying incidents that I have seen have been girls. Well, I certainly know that for me, when I was bullied as a student, it was always the girls. They were the ones that were... They're mean. Certainly the most capable of the viciousness, (laughs) right? Yeah. It's the same, uh, I think. I don't think it's a gender 
No, I don't either. Attribute. It is mm-hmm. a circumstance yeah. attribute, though, that that happens to them. All right. So that talking out, you know, it's really funny how people don't realize how much other people are suffering until they open up and have the courage to speak about it themselves, right? Yeah. So one of the things that I do is I have something called a reciprocity ring because most people don't want to raise their hand and ask for help because that, especially as as a young person, even an adult, that would suggest that you're weak or or whatever whatever that may be. No one wants to get vulnerable. So in a a reciprocity ring, there's one simple rule. Everyone goes around the ring. We sit in a circle and you have to share one thing you need help with. Doesn't matter what it is. So we make it a habit of asking for help. Now the bullies don't start right away asking to saying they have all this social angst or what's going on, right? At first it's, it's a lot of superficial stuff. But if you can make that a habit and you, you have one or two kids get vulnerable and make that a benchmark, then it opens up the door for other kids to get vulnerable and we start to talk about some of this stuff and ma- it makes it more comfortable. Now, will this happen over the course of a one afternoon visit that you'll do something like this? Or will you um, will you have to develop a relationship for this kind of thing to happen? This kind of openness, it sounds a little bit like group therapy, needs some trust before that will take place, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I could certainly do it and I have done it, but that's a, an evolved process. That's what the teacher and I are tag team in that. And she's finding some time to bake that in the course of the day to make that a priority but again that's that certainly we don't want to make it feel like therapy but I guess in some ways a little bit therapeutic in a way but for kids in a way it's, it's um, too often we don't really ask kids how they're feeling at least at home anymore so it's new to actually have someone take the time and slow down and just have a real conversation about what's really going on right so Devin if another school's out there listening to you and they want to have you be a part of their program how do they get a hold of you so you could um, you could go to my website which is www and it's devinchughes.com that's d-e-v-i-n middle initial c h-u-g-h-e-s.com and can certainly contact me there okay and you um your public speaking engagements they'll take place all over or just locally or how do you do that um no i'm all over the globe right now so i just got back from tampa florida last night so Okay. So for something like this to be meaningful, you almost have to set up um, a process that somebody long after you've been there will take over and follow up. Um, We've talked a lot about today changing behaviors through repatterning the brain. Um, I like that everything you've done really does require some repetition so that you're creating new neural pathways to new behaviors. Um, how does that take place when you're gone? Does the program offer some um, follow-up work that people can follow once you've been there and gone? So one of the caveats that I, before I'll come and speak, is that whomever the school is or the educator that wants me to come, there's an agreement that they'll, there's a commitment there to follow on after I leave. Because it, an event in and of itself does very little. I need a process. I need a commitment on their part to commit to my program as I say, to bake it, to embed it into the curriculum, so to speak, because again, you're not going to, I'm not going to change human, a kid's behavior in an hour. Although I think I may be good and powerful and influential. I'm probably not going to do it the 12 years before that or 13 years before that. So, uh, I, I get a commitment now, whether that follow up on that all the time, but that that's the intent here is to, again, embed that in the curriculum and at home. 
Okay, good. So <clears throat> if you're just tuning in, this is Real People OC, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. I have the pleasure today to have with me Julie Arlotti, uh, who is with uh, Hallstrom Academy here in Orange County, and also Devin C. Hughes, um, the author, speaker, and um, presenter, comic strip writer, I love that, <laughs> um, on... Uh, on bullying and really self-talk that helps to uh, bulletproof vest against emotional gunfire for your kids. Um, we we still have about 10 minutes, which is not a lot of time here at Real People OC. It goes pretty fast. And um, I want to know a little bit more about your background, Devin, that you can share with us that somebody else that's listening might relate to and uh, might bring them out into a new understanding that there's probably a better way for them if they're feeling pain either as somebody that bullies or somebody that's receiving bullying or is being bullied. So, I, you know, I think I'm that poster child for any kid right now who just feels odd, different, awkward, weird. So whether it was being biracial, whether it be having a learning disability or being bullied or socioeconomic, for most of my life I didn't fit in. So I'm that guy, you know, and I masked it with a with a kind of faux confidence. Fortunately, I played sports. So, um, you know, my backstory is complex and it's still complicated in a myriad of ways. But I think if I did not have some intervention early in my academic career when I had the one on one, which is similar to Hallstrom, I wouldn't be here. So, you know, my mother's no longer on the planet. But it was that one-on-one intervention right then that allowed me. She was the first person that actually showed me or talked to me about college. I was so mired in madness, even in seventh grade, that college was not even on my radar screen. I mean, she was the one who literally took me on a college tour. I mean, I was in seventh grade, but she knew. She wanted to paint a picture of what could be. So she literally took me to Georgetown University and walked me around. I had no idea what I was looking at or seeing, but I knew I was on a college campus. So little things like that began to plant the seeds and she watered it coupled with the progress that I made at an early age. Mm -hmm. And then I get, began to accelerate through high school. And I end up going to Colgate University, which is a top 25 university in the country. I get paid, I have a master's degree, I get paid to speak all around the world, but I was that kid in sixth or seventh grade who did, had nothing going. And because of one or a couple people in my life, everything changed and I, it changed the way I think about myself which was huge. So are we talking about an age range where parents and, and uh, we'll call them caregivers, but, you know, key individuals in a, in a student's life, are we looking at a, an age range that would be really helpful to pay particular attention to these kinds of behaviors, whether somebody is a bully or being bullied? So I have found, uh, now this is, there's no data to suggest it, but again, my personal experience is typically at transition periods in school are usually times when there's an inflection point. So when you go from elementary to middle, and then from middle to high school, those are ripe areas where again, on that pecking order, you come in, you're still trying to figure your way out. There's a lot of angst for whatever that looks like and it gets exacerbated. I tend to find that certain, those transition points, you can start to find that your kids are starting to act in a you know, different way. So I would say for the parents out, it'd be really mindful of those particular areas. Okay. It's, it's such an interesting point because I've spent my entire kids' academic life, all three of them, avoiding public school. And it's, it's mostly because I just don't think the model works. And it, 
it's not that we aren't giving them an education. It's just that the social experiment is just too big of an experiment to throw on kids at that age when they're also trying to learn so they can be academically prepared for a productive life. Um, I'm curious, can you weigh in on what you think about the way public school education rolls out its curriculum and if you think um, it's conducive to learning or if you think this is the great wild west that we're sticking our kids in public school and experiencing some of the most heinous you know, parts of humanity? So uh, I have a bias. I'll, I'll have to openly admit I went to private school and so did my wife. I actually went to Catholic and military school. My wife went to uh, Catholic school, so that's my bias. So that's what I know. You're biased for, for that, then, in uh, support of private school. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, for support of it, so that's what I know, and, I, and it, it paid huge dividends for me. Now, if I look at my kids, they go to public school. Now that said, they go to a brand new high school, so they were the first freshman class in that school, and now they're the first sophomore class. So they had a smaller student population uh, then, right? Absolutely. So they had a, uh, when they started in ninth grade, they had a, I think it was roughly like 500 kids. Okay, yeah, my daughters had that unique experience as well, and um, and so that's kind of, you know, it's something that I am so thankful for. You know, I just I just wouldn't have wanted the kids to be, you know. I don't know. It just seems like the land of the lost out there when they go into school. Um, the antidote for the kids that are stuck in public school, what can we give them? We have about two more minutes left. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't want to put down public school because I go into some really, really great schools. But I also go to some schools and and uh, just by the, the sheer size of the class and, and some of the teachers that have you know, been doing the same thing for 30 years. Uh, I think we need to, you know, the, the playbook needs to change, so to speak. Uh, in public school and the, and the attention. So if you're a kid and you're in the top 10% of the class, public school is probably great. Right. Right. Because it's not going to affect you in that environment. You're going to rise above whatever's there. Anything mm -hmm. else you can think of that um, could be changed immediately? Because I know you, the intent to rewrite the concept of labeling somebody a bully is really important for you to avoid. Yeah. So, I mean, I, if, if I could leave anything, so the educators and the parents, I would be very careful about labeling kids with the, with that term, the bully. I mean, right now you get horseplay and, and right away an educator comes around the corner right. and calls the kid a bully. Right. Which, yeah. Right, right, right. And then they're stuck. They're stuck like mm -hmm. that. And that's that's where they reside. Yeah. And so that's the prism in which the educator now views that kid's behavior. Right, right. Okay, well, um, I want to go back over the details. Julie, why don't you go mm -hmm. ahead and tell us really quickly about the event and um, and where it's going to be held. It is uh, April 25th, and um, it's... Uh, it's going to be right? at our, yeah, it will be at our uh, Newport campus, and it's called Halstrom Success. Um, it's free event, and we invite parents, students, and even teachers. I think a lot of the teachers need to hear what you have to say. Um, April 25th, Halstrom Academy in Newport Beach, 12 o'clock, 2302 Martin Street, Suite 100 in Colton Plaza, Irvine. And to RSVP, you can uh, call 866 590 72 or visit the website halstromsuccess.com. 
Okay, good. All right. Again, that's open to the public. We try to do everything here where we cover open to the public for um, for individuals that are listening to KUCI. Um, we consider it a, a tremendous value to have had you on today. Um, would you do me a favor before we go and mention the title of your book? Because it looks like a fascinating story. You, um, you have your other book that you brought in for me to have a look at. Yeah, so my memoir is titled Contrast, A Biracial Man's Journey to Desegregate His Past. Ah, love it. Can you give me just a little snippet of what it's like? Yeah, so it's vicariously living through the eyes of a biracial kid in the 70s growing up, not white enough nor black enough, trying to fit in in a world that wants to put you in a box and dealing with a bunch of stuff with family issues, school issues, growing up, building self-esteem and talking. I think it's a feel-good story, but there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, raw emotion in it because I felt a lot of pain as a kid. But I think at the end you'll see that because of some critical moments uh, in, that happened in my life, I was able to get my way out of the mud. Fabulous story. All right. Well, listen, I'm so thankful, Devin C. Hughes and Julie Arlotti, for joining us today and talking about a really important topic. Up next is going to be Counterspin. And then after that, you'll have Matt Kaplan with Planetary Radio. And I thank you for tuning in each and every week here at uh, Real People OC from 4 to 5 on Thursdays. Catch you next week.